get lost, please. Thank you. I can tell you that every job has its ups and downs, and a union can't change that fact. I mean, it is the magic elixir of our of our age and of all ages. What it does for prostate cancer is amazing. You get two hundred million dollar profit, and you didn't have to pay any tax. Isn't that true? Listen, it's, it's is that true or not? It's, yes or it no? Is, you do not pay a profit when someone a, a, a tax when someone Maybe makes you sell assets. For you, become secretary of treasury, so you didn't have to pay the tax there. Oh. <laughs> He never gets fully hard. 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 He never gets he never he never gets fully hard. Hello, welcome back to Grub. Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about real billionaires who never get fully hard. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. I'm here. I hope you enjoyed our new theme song. I'm, I'm joined by my friends. Yogi Polywolf. Andy Palmer. Steve Jeffries. And uh, so this is part two of our Google episode. Larry Page, Sergey Brin. Uh, hopefully you listened to the previous one. A lot of great stuff in there. You learn all about um, the economy of starting a web series, <laughs> uh, of, of working on Google Glass, and then getting close to the, the family of a billionaire, and then uh, uh, using his capital to start a web series about how it's wacky that you have depression. <laughs> And and if 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 there in was in an apartment, very specific. If there was an Olympic event for getting out of bed with your depression, and just, you need just, you need a red camera <laughs> to shoot that to really capture comedically how that would look like. You know, the, the little little um, insider trick on comedy is that uh-huh. the more expensive the camera, the funnier it is. <laughs> uh, some of you, uh, just to, just to peek behind the curtain. You're probably like, all right, I listened to that last week. Uh, that Not enough drop, drops. That drop keyboard was really annoying, <laughs> but they've had a week, and uh, I'm sure that they're completely over it now. <laughs> Andy, um, Andy but, is currently handcuffed <laughs> with the microphone uh, taped in front of him. That's right. We're, um, you probably also sent us uh, a bunch of angry Twitter messages uh, about how stupid that was. Uh, the thing is, though... Uh, we're recording these both on the same day, so it's still novel to us, and we still haven't seen your angry Twitter messages. Right. Um, so uh, we, we appreciate your feedback on part one. Uh, none of it will be incorporated <laughs> into part two. And it's uh, not because we don't appreciate your feedback. It's just because we haven't heard it yet. My wife. My, my wife. Um, but so where we left you in part one was essentially... It never gets fully hard. <laughs> not that. Uh, where we left you in part one was essentially the story of, um, of uh, Google... Uh, into 1999. 1999, they get this $25 million capital injection from the, the venture capitalists in Silicon Valley. Uh, they, they get this office space. You know, it's kind of like a fratty environment. They're hiring a lot of people who are fresh out of uh, Stanford or Stanford grad school. Um, Sergey Brin is uh, spending a lot of time in the masseuse room uh, with various uh, employees. He uh, never gets fully hard. He never leaves the masseuse room. It's his office. I <laughs> um, wonder if he has that in common with other high-profile billionaires. <laughs> I think so. I think he does. He never gets fully hard. What? <laughs> I'm just imagining uh, uh, Epstein and Sergey Brin having an arms race to build the most luxurious <laughs> masseuse room. <laughs> I, I assume that uh, Brin and Paige don't have Epstein connections just because you can look up Epstein on Google. <laughs> I think so. 
Yeah, if uh, if we have to start doing our Epstein research on Bing, that will be a very bad <laughs> sign. <laughs> Uh, Turns out you can't find it on Bing because Gates was on the island. You have to go to the dark web for that. <laughs> well, speaking of which, like uh, Larry Page got married on Richard Branson's island, mm-hmm. where I guess you guys talked about in the episode he like groped somebody. <laughs> so yeah. you know, wonderful people, billionaires. There's also like a photo of uh, Larry Page at like his brother-in-law's wedding, and he's wearing Google Glass at the wedding. <laughs> And it's like, imagine going to a wedding in a Bluetooth headset and not being the biggest douche <laughs> at the wedding. <laughs> I like the idea of like, they, they go to the after party of the wedding and they're like, you're going to have to take those Google glasses off <laughs> <laughs> because uh, Epstein provided the entertainment here and uh, we can't have this on recording. <laughs> Though he did have a provision that he gets Google Glass. <laughs> I know I already made this joke on a previous episode, but now I'm imagining the eyes wide shut mask with the Google Glass <laughs> over it. <laughs> like, damn, these 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 child orgies have really entered Web 2.0, haven't they? It's required. Everyone at the orgy now has to have Google Glass, so we don't recognize who's who. Put them on. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone at the Eyes Wide Shut party has in-game clown posse makeup <laughs> so that they don't get caught by the facial recognition software. Yeah, I was going to say, the, the augmented reality system is going to start like asking you to tag people and everything. So. <laughs> but so, I guess where we left you on the previous episode, chronologically, was as we mentioned, 99, they get this big capital injection. Um, 2000, they're you know in an office. It's kind of a fratty environment. Most people say around 2001, Eric Schmidt gets hired as the CEO, supposed to be the adult in the room. Sheryl Sandberg uh, of Lean In fame, she future episode. She also I've get, got the audio book already. <laughs> she also gets hired in 2001, but it's supposedly it's an act of self harm. <laughs> supposedly, these two hires kind of clean up the environment a bit. It's like less fratty, more directional, um, you know, less of a party kind of thing. But what happens importantly, uh, of course, in uh, 2000 is the dot-com crash. The dot-com boom keeps booming. Yes. The, uh, all of uh, this, the, the Wall Street scam of <laughs> oh, essentially... Yes, the, the boom of 2000, the boom that never ended. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Wall Street scam, which was basically they were IPOing all these stocks, which had no way of making money whatsoever, but everybody was so hyped about uh, the infinite potential of the World Wide Web that these Wall Street uh, uh, firms would give preferred shares to, uh, of course, themselves and also preferred clients. And then uh, they would IPO the thing and then send their analysts out on TV to hype it. And then a bunch of dipshits or the normal public or pension funds or whatever would buy into these stocks. And then as soon as the price got ticked up from what the initial uh, buy-in of the preferred shares was, they would all dump their stock. So, you know, Wall Street and uh, the connected individuals were doing fine kind of pumping and dumping these companies that had no way of making money and then about 2000 the bubble crashed one explanation i heard actually from that google guys book was they said uh companies stopped buying new computers because after y2k happened like everybody was just buying all of this tech shit before right, y2k right. and then there was no y2k so they stopped buying all these new computers and then that finally popped the bubble yeah. oh that makes yeah. sense uh, so that's one explanation i've heard but uh, whatever the cause, the dot-com crash wiped out a lot of companies that uh, had no way of making wh- money whatsoever and were just complete pump-and-dump scams. Like uh, Brian Singer's uh, web video website. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> what is this? Uh, it was um, Brian Singer bought, uh, funded a website 
that would play uh, web series, mm-hmm. uh, and it, they were uh, made for kids, made for young teenagers, shot, and they shot entirely in Google Glass. <laughs> they they starred young teenagers, uh, and it turns out that it wasn't profitable to uh, release a web series when the internet cannot handle video. (laughs) And also, that wasn't the point. Uh, uh, One of the creators of that website is now on the run because um, they systematically molested everyone uh, involved, and uh, it's only now coming to light for Brian Singer, but... If you watch an open secret, yeah, the documentary, and we talked about this a bit on the David Geffen episode, where David Geffen's connection Mm -hmm. is like he was at some of these parties that Brian Singer and the other guy Andy just mentioned would have, where uh, hanging uh, out parties where children have alleged sense that they were molested and raped. You know, fun stuff, all that kind of (laughs) eyes wide shut Google Glass (laughs) nonsense. Um, but anyways, the point is, uh, you know what? I have no idea how we even got on that. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. We've still got Epstein on the brain clearly. Yeah. Um, but who doesn't? Yeah. But so the point was there was a dot com crash and, uh, hundreds of fronts for child molestation were wiped out overnight in the dot com crash. Uh, Wabistics was gone, all sorts of things. Um, but so the, the dot-com crash happens in 2000 and Google's actually able to weather this storm pretty well. Google, they're getting their initial money from licensing their search engines to other companies. I think they get a licensing deal with AOL eventually. Uh, they're also, uh, they're also just doing a a kind of a traditional advertising model, but it's really the dot-com crash. And a lot of people also give credit to Sheryl Sandberg on this. Uh, again, she was hired 2001. What happens in 2002 is they really rejigger their advertising model. Well, they, they kind of came into a crisis because, like, they were able to survive it, but they were kind of hanging by the skin of their teeth. Like, they, um, there was a lot of pressure from uh, the VC people to make more money because they were, they were licensing, but they, they I couldn't. Feel like, I feel like those people don't have enough money, so they, need, <laughs> they do need more of it, in fairness to them. And, and so they were just... Part of it was like everyone was freaked out by the dot-com bust, so uh, it led to then the venture capitalists who, uh, I I mean, I don't know for sure, but they probably lost some money in other um, ventures, Mm -hmm. uh, then turning to Google and being like, hey, you're not going to fuck up, are you? We need you to make some money. And so then Google... I just got wiped out by Brian Singer's company. (laughs) (laughs) I'm still investing in X-Men 4. Um, so then they brought, uh, ad AdWords was kind of a marginal, uh, venture in Google at the time. It, it was, it was the, the licensing that was their, their primary revenue stream, but they realized that they had to bring in more money. Mm-hmm. And so basically in 2002, they, uh, switched to, uh, go down a trajectory, um, that they're still on. Right. And yeah, and it is interesting because we also mentioned on the previous episode, Sergey uh, Brin wrote this paper at Stanford, which was essentially like an advertiser supported uh, search engine will be inherently corrupted because it will favor adverti- advertisers over other people. Right. And, you know, and it's like and of course, their motto famously is don't be evil. So it's like whatever idealist kind of aspersions they got into the company with, I think the real turn happens in 2002 where evil, evil was reinterpreted to mean uh, 
making the venture capitalists unhappy. Yes. Evil means uh, losses for shareholders. Yeah. Um, but so the, the turn really comes in 2002. And just like uh, from the book, uh, uh, Google Guys, um, just like a short explanation, uh, The Google Guys, excuse me. I mentioned it uh, last episode. It, it's called The Google Guys by Richard Brandt. And they just have a short explanation of AdWords here. Uh, what they came up with was a system that would let advertisers bid online to set prices with those ads automatically matched to, ter- to search terms without advertisers ever talking to an ad rep. And again, when we say match to search terms, what we mean is people will search for things and then AdWords will say, okay, this person is searching for, the example they give in the Creepy Line documentary is, this person is searching for umbrellas. So we will start showing them ads for people selling umbrellas. Right. And, you know, it kind of builds from there because they just need more and more information about you and they're collecting a profile about you, all of this so that they can show you targeted ads that you are going to interact with. And this idea kind of, it, it started, they had kind of a, a series of revelations. Like at first, uh, what they realized, uh, and this was before they decided to implement it in ads, uh, but they realized that there was uh, what they called data exhaust, which mm-hmm. uh, was essentially just uh, excess data that would come from a search that they could uh, collect, but they thought was unnecessarily unnecessary. It would be like how a search is phrased, spelling, punctuation, uh, how long people would dwell on a certain part of the page, um, their click patterns, the locations, say from the IP address. Like this was all considered um, basically data exhaust. But what they were able to do then is they realized that this stuff could be folded into the search engine to make searches more accurate. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the breakthroughs they realized was, let me see here. They found um, in 2002 mm-hmm. uh, a bunch of searches for Carol Brady's maiden name. What? Mm-hmm. And then um, it was 48 minutes after the hour, and it first appeared on the East Coast. Uh, then it appeared in each successive time zone out to Hawaii. And what they realized is that it was a question at the end of who wants to be a millionaire. Oh. And so then they kind of that that kind of triggered their realization that they could essentially predict behaviors using past behaviors. Right, right. And so they kind of folded that into the search engine. And so then uh, once they realized, really like came under the gun uh, in terms of needing money, they took these ideas of um, folding in the data exhaust Mm -hmm. and then folded it into ads. And so then they would be able to calculate the click-through rate. Like if someone clicks on an ad... Uh, Google can, you know, read that and then they can mark that as success. Whereas before that, ads were just billed based on how many times someone would see them. Mm -hmm. But Google started billing them based on the success of the ad. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, So instead of eyes per ad, it became clicks per ad? Is that what you're saying? It became click-throughs. Right. Hmm. Yeah. So they essentially created the clickbait market? Uh, Sort of, Yeah. I mean, it's 2002. I mean, they they definitely did redefine internet advertising. And essentially another part of the story, which we'll get to, is they kind of get into an arms race with Facebook because they invent this kind of ads word service where they're showing ads based on this profile they're creating of your searches. But then, you know, Facebook has even more data on you. So Google needs more data. But I mean, that's changing the face of advertising, period. Because beforehand, you know, you'd put a billboard up because you can say like, oh, you know, 800,000 people drive by this billboard every week or whatever. Mm -hmm. But to change that from, well, 100 people will click on this instead, that's a huge shift. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It was was, uh, 
I mean, that's, you know, we, we mentioned in the last episode and on the Facebook, like pretty much on the Facebook episode or Zuck episode, pretty much all the money in advertising now is going to Google and Facebook. Right. Yeah, almost three, thir- three quarters of it well, in the U.S. Disgusting. Yeah. And um, again, from the Google guy's book, basically in January 2002, uh, Larry and Sergey give the go-ahead to convert what was their ad system at the time to this new system. Their old system was essentially fixed fee ads were placed at a box at the top of search results that clearly said, you know, ads here. And uh, then they switched to the auction-based AdWords. And the other reason, as we mentioned, why this was so profitable is uh, people who wanted to advertise would essentially, you know, bid an auction. Mm -hmm. uh, And these are automated and based on per click. Um, And again, it's... It's it's a very important change, but we should mention that essentially they were sued right after they launched this because they stole this from somebody. Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. They took it from uh, Overture. Yeah. There's there's this great quote, and I'm uh, so I read the um, book uh, Surveillance Capitalism by Shoshana Zuboff. And just sh- just real quick, I, I do like the idea though of somebody being like, you know what. Uh, intrusive surveillance capitalism is okay, but plagiarism is not. <laughs> <laughs> well, she like quotes this other book. At least book. be original. If you're going to <laughs> snoop into every mm-hmm. aspect mm-hmm. of my life to sell mm-hmm. me products and compromise my data <laughs> and my privacy. But and, sorry, yeah, and, what were and, you saying? In this other book, they, they quote someone as saying like, and then Paige and Bren saw Overture using ranked advertising. And they had the ingenious idea to take it and make it their own. It's like, that's a really stretching ingenious. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, um, while Bran was in the massage room, <laughs> he uh, happened to uh, see Overture's technology <laughs> in between sessions. Uh, but so what happened there is uh, Overture does sue them for this, and uh, it, this gets settled in 2004. Yahoo buys Overture, and uh, Yahoo uh, grants Google a license, a perpetual license for this pro- uh, this patent that Overture invented in exchange for about 2.7 million shares of Google stock. I just realized Sean says Yahoo the same way you'd expect Christopher Walken to. <laughs> <laughs> Yahoo. Uh, but so, yeah, I mean, they stole it, but they were making so much fucking money that they got away with it by basically just giving, uh, Yahoo 1% of their, uh, company. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, uh, and then this kind of continues 2003, they invent AdSense and AdSense is very similar to AdWords. You might be familiar with it if you've invented a website or put up a website. Basically it's a system where quoting from the Google guys book, Google uses computer algorithms to analyze the data on a website and choose which ads people visiting the site were most likely to click on. So if you happen to have put up a website and you have traffic, you can uh, get Google AdSense on there and you'll get a bit of money uh, just by letting Google do their fucking surveillance capitalism on your site and right. determine what people who are checking out your site are also Googling or Google Chroming or checking out on their Android device, whatever the case may be. Google more like Big Brother. Yeah. Shoshana Zuboff uh, changed the name to Big Other. Oh. <laughs> what, really? No, yeah, well, she, uh, she goes into another, it. Another concession to uh, political correctness. <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to gender the surveillance state. There's plenty of women <laughs> violating the surveillance and privacy of people. So it's not just a brother, it's a big other. 
I'm just imagining Cheryl Sandberg's Lean In cover, but on one of those Big Brother is watching posters. <laughs> lean In. But And so, you know, AdSense kind of expands this, and now all sorts of websites that aren't even Google are doing the same kind of targeting advertising uh, model that Google is doing. Um, but, uh, Andy, you wanted to talk about uh, B.F. Skinner, just kind of like the general mindset behind surveillance capitalism and this, this shift here? Yeah, yeah. First, I wanted to... Um play this uh clip basically on google's business model that uh it's uh to kind of set the stage so it's it's from this uh town hall with the guy who hosts planet money one of them uh two bootlickers and then uh daddy david harvey and you can kind of just hear the tone of the bootlicking yeah, uh, throughout and i thought i would sort of talk with the three of you about what so he's talking about this google building let's talk about uh, that right in now of, in of chelsea a, a huge mm. new york um company choosing to make new york a major part of its home and ed i'm i'm guessing that for you this is your book is called the triumph of the city this would be a triumph for for new york city is that fair well, I think it's an indication of the enduring strength of cities, and I think I, I couldn't think of a better example of that than Google. And then he goes on to bootlick a bunch. Uh, so then, it, it did just occur to me that with Yogi's view of the Manhattan skyline, so, they are probably watching us from the Google <laughs> Chelsea office right now. A lot of our stuff is uh, stored on Google Drive. Yeah, I was going to say we have to finish recording this episode before my Google Doc research is locked. <laughs> <laughs> So then uh, he, uh, after uh, a bunch more bootlicking, he goes over to Harvey. And so I'm finding myself really wondering, what are you going to say about... about he introduces this David building? Harvey. How does this make... Uh, well, I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to say. Uh, uh, the interesting thing about this building is to think about the labor process that's involved and the activities going on there. What does it make? What does it produce? And it turns out with Google that um, we, the public, actually do the labor. We do it. They don't make anything. They just sit there in that building, and what do they extract from us? They extract rents from us. In other words, this is a totally parasitic form of economic activity. That's what you would say. <laughs> yeah, all right. And then he goes on to say that um, it used to be American cities would make things, and like Latin American cities would just extract rent, but now that's switched over. And New York City is one of the most parasitic economies in the universe. He's listened to and our Google podcast. <laughs> is a form of new uh, industrial organization, which is not about making anything. As I said, it's really about extracting uh, labor from everybody else who actually contributes all the information that Google then utilizes and sells to everybody else at a profit. Here we go. Here I, we go. I, Here's I, the real bootlicking. I have no interest in, in Google personally and, and I'm not here as a representative of Google. <laughs> uh, uh, but I, I think that actually um, it's, it's a narrow view of what Google does to say that they don't produce anything. Now, so <laughs> get fucked. He completely misunderstood what Harvey said, right? Uh, which was that Google extracts all of its labor from people, and then this guy's like, well, no, you wouldn't say that they don't produce anything, and it's like, well, that... I mean, so, the font for their website was custom-made. Yeah. So, well, let's get into... Um, I wanted to get Wait. into sort of... 
No, oh, go ahead. You you cut off the whole David Harvey, Harvey quote. He goes, uh, "New York is one of the most parasitic economies in the world. Four dipshits just record themselves hanging out, <laughs> and then they charge five dollars a month on Patreon." <laughs> And this goes on in thousands and thousands of cases. It's this very is fucking stupid. <laughs> this is absolutely fucking stupid. <laughs> um, so, but, but yeah, and uh, one more illustrative thing from the Google Guys book. Basically, this AdSense and AdWords again revolutionizes internet um, advertising. Facebook would would do it again, but uh, from the book, by the end of 2008, Google had at the time captured 75% of internet search advertising, while Yahoo held on to about 20% and Microsoft just 4%. Google's revenue from advertising came in at $5.5 billion in the third quarter of 2008. So again, this is wildly successful and uh, becomes the model for the industry that just really has become an arms race eviscerating people's privacy. Basically to understand how what what the goal of surveillance capitalism is or how how it's uh, meant to be revolutionary you you have to go back to essentially uh, the 30s or 40s um, to a man named BF Skinner which is for Burris Frederick Skinner uh, who Principal Skinner was named after. Skinner. Skinner. We don't have that drop. So he was a pioneer, an early pioneer of the idea of behavioral psychology. Mm-hmm. And uh, so a lot of you probably learned about this in like Psychology 101 class. That's certainly where I learned about it. Lame. Yeah. And it was uh, it, the main idea behind his uh, behavioral psychology was He was famous for his steamed clams. <laughs> <laughs> Operational conditioning. Operant conditioning, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that uh, is really... That's how I get through my relationships. <laughs> Operation conditioning. It's a good way to hide the uh, Aurora Borealis. Not drug discovery. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, operant conditioning, uh, many, uh, you're probably aware that it's, it's essentially there's positive reinforcement, uh, which is when you reward a good behavior. Uh, I've used this to teach my cat to high five. That's right, Andy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By, uh, saying high five and giving her <laughs> and giving her treats when she does it. Uh, there's also, um, a negative reinforcement, which is That's where, where you criticize us on Twitter. And so we get Andy a keyboard that he can play drops with. <laughs> he just makes a million nonsensical sound effects. No, that's punishment. That's yes. different from negative. Uh, so Yeah, Wait, Sean, actually, you though, idiot. One, one random thing I learned in my UW Psychology 101 class. Nerd. That I remember is um, they said negative reinforcement is also reinforcement. Like right. maybe that's kind of a misnomer. I don't know, like negative conditioning or something. If you're trying to discourage a behavior, you don't do reinforcement essentially. Right, right. Well, the I think the idea you're you're trying negative reinforcement is actually trying to encourage a behavior, and okay, what it okay. is, yeah, yeah, yeah. punishment is to discourage. So negative reinforcement is like um, I play a bunch of drops, and then when Sean starts saying something interesting, I stop. <laughs> uh, but you then, never stop playing drops. <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, we're still waiting for the day. <laughs> and uh, and then, of course, punishment is exactly what we all know it to be. You know, we uh, we use that on the podcast where we have this little cattle prod. And then when Sean starts to give his opinion on feminism, uh, we give him this little zap. Not enough to hurt him, but enough that he doesn't want it to happen again. Uh-huh. And so B.F. Skinner. Uh, That's what it is, Andy. Shut up. <laughs> 
Skinner uh, took these the, uh, ideas that he basically just got from like torturing lab rats mm. or giving them pellets and stuff and then built an entire worldview on it. And so he wrote a shitty novel called Walden 2 where it's basically, uh, I haven't read any of Ayn Rand's books, but it seems similar to them where it just has a protagonist explaining this new world he's created where everyone is conditioned to do the right thing um, based on something that's agreed upon by the community. Basically, he, he took his behaviorist ideas and then said, okay, we could base society on this. When people do bad things, they get punished. Uh, when they do good things, they are rewarded. And that way, everyone does the right thing in society. And uh, a part of this idea was that there's no such thing as free will. Uh, as he sees it like he took the idea that because you know physicists have shown that all human processes are the result of physical properties um, and thus in a physical from a physical standpoint they're all predetermined then free will doesn't exist and Skinner then took that to mean that every behavior we take is a stimulus response right and so everything we do is you know it's it's learned from essentially elaborate operant conditioning and he then went in a weird direction with this and wrote a book um i think it was called beyond freedom and dignity and if you ask me this all sounds like a brave new world am i right (laughs) i've read a book (laughs) and beyond freedom and dignity also known as what happens when you log into facebook <laughs> <laughs> and it, it, we've it, evolved beyond those concepts it was created facebook he, he basically said that because they're like that free will is uh, a mystic idea of course what, what he ignores is that like you you can't just say that there's no free will and then give yourself over to like someone else to like make you do things like you can't like you can't escape free will, even if it's not real. The human experience is not uh, divorced from it. We're mm-hmm. stuck inside of it, and any decision that is made uh, with regards to free will is a decision that's made by someone using their free will. Like it, it's either you make a decision or you have someone else make it for you, but there's still someone making a decision, even though uh, ultimately it's an illusion. I, I probably have lost all of our philosophy student listeners, but. Um, so to be fair, they were never found. They st- <laughs> they stopped listening last episode after you played too many drops. <laughs> we we yeah, I mean, we used to be the 181st <laughs> philosophy podcast <laughs> in, in, in Finland, and just because of that, we're down to 200. I don't oh, think yeah. it, I don't By think it way, counts. Yeah, I don't think you can say we lost our philosophy listeners if we just lost all of our listeners, including the ones who studied philosophy. Uh, shouts out to Czech Republic in Finland, where yeah, we yeah. are in the 100 top 180 business podcast. Hell yeah, 151 in Finland, 155 in Czech Republic. Public oh. 190 in the United States uh, last October. Oh, good news! All right, but Andy, so essentially, how does this BF Skinner stuff tie into to Google and the operating model? Well, so essentially, the the idea of operant conditioning and creating a, um, uh, a controlling people's behavior through that is uh, you really like watching rats suffer. <laughs> Google, yeah, Google just put up videos of rats killing each other, <laughs> and they were trying to be more efficient at it, and that really drove their... So what what it means is that YouTube realized that in creating more effective ads, um, they could make ads more effective the more information they were able to gain from people, because by gaining information from how people would react to certain ads, 
they could then take that information and then feed it back into the system, like process it in a way where you can then use how people naturally react to different stimuli right. uh, to try to control the reaction they have. Okay, so essentially you're saying we're all guinea pigs to the Google machine and they've learned from us in ways that we didn't even realize and they're manipulating how we do things by the information they got from us by using their serv- uh, service initially. Yes. Yep, pretty smart. <laughs> One of the more fucked up things, the, the other bit of research, we watched the documentary, The Creepy Line, it's on uh, Amazon uh, Prime Video, but it talks primarily about Google, but also about Facebook and these kinds of behavioral things. And one of the things it mentions is that Facebook was essentially showing users with depression uh, depressing content as a way of of testing essentially their ability to control people. And we talked about a bit on the the Facebook episode of the spike in teen suicide. And so it is entirely conceivable that Facebook killed some people. Yeah. And Facebook, it wasn't just people with depression. They would, Facebook kind of um, shot did sort of a shotgun approach where they would just manipulate everyone's newsfeed in different ways um, to just see how they would respond based on um, almost random configurations of uh, different ways of presenting information mm-hmm. to people. And so, you know, if uh, they would see like if something would lower people's moods or if something would increase people's moods, but like essentially if you were using Facebook during the last few years, you were essentially a guinea pig um, to their operant conditioning testing. And part of this idea of getting an edge then in behavioral modification is you, because humans are so complex, uh, being able to manipulate a human outside of like uh, pushing a lever uh, to get candy. By the way, um, the the most successful utilization of these ideas is casinos and like slot machines. Mm. Um, but outside of like that condition you need to really get as many different dimensions of human behavior and human experience as possible. And so in order to do this, Google expanded its operations into just about everything that they could get their hands on. Right. And so you kind of see this explosion into like Google maps, Gmail. Um, Like for instance, when Gmail came out, they would systematically, uh, you know, read through, the emails like not people but programs would to better Read target the, ads of course yeah and you know they would have give people profiles so then they could use that to track people's movements they would use cookies that would track which websites people went to um, even when they weren't using it and then you know they would create the chrome browser so that they could track people um, even when they're not uh, on a google website yeah and let's not forget about all the carbs from all those cookies <laughs> android records what we're doing even when we are not online. As soon as you connect to the internet, Android uploads to Google a complete history of where you've been that day, among many other things. And yeah, so this is like Andy was saying, like uh, you get off Google, they don't know where you are, so they build Google Chrome. Now they always know where you are. You're Gmailing, so they can scan that to make ads, and now they have Android operating system, so even when you're not on the internet, Android is keeping track of where you are and what you are doing to an extent the entire day that uploads to Google as soon as you connect to the internet. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. fucking terrifying. And even if you've been offline for a long period of time, it collects where you've been in your history and updates your profile. 
profile accordingly. Once yes, you do Google has a profile of you. Not including the Android phones, which also track and monitor your movements and stuff. And another point that's made in the Creepy Line documentary is essentially you will Google things that you wouldn't even tell like your closest friends right. and family. Mm-hmm. So like the Google profile of you is probably the most detailed thing that exists in the world. I mean, it, it outpaces like any sort of fucking uh, surveillance uh, state kind of bullshit. I mean, it, you know, what it's the, the CIA- new religion. Exactly. Like what the fucking CIA or FSB or MI6 has on you is going to be nothing compared to what Google does. I don't know. If you are using their juicy pictures, but I never put on Google. (laughs) (laughs) I snail mail mail it to them just because I'm such a big James Bond fan. (laughs) You don't know how many... You don't know how many honeypot operations <laughs> I have been involved in. So I will have you know that MI6 has far more information just, than Google. I write to them like, I'd like to be the next James Bond. It's just a picture of my asshole. <laughs> <laughs> they write me back like, we don't do, uh, you can't be a James Bond at MI6. <laughs> like, look. Click the link. I'm, I'm basically you own me now. That how, means I also get to be your next agent. How how did Andy die? Well, MI6 killed him after they decided he was just being too annoying. <laughs> they didn't even try. They just showed up to his house. Like we might as well do wet work, or these people, these pictures will never stop coming. <laughs> so yeah, so actually the Android case is interesting because it's it's part of Google's strategy where a lot of people will talk about how uh, they think that Google is getting into this market or that market because they're trying to be competitive with Apple or uh, what have you. Right. But that's not necessarily what Google is trying to do. Oh? Because when they get into these markets, they usually don't make a profit off of it. It was the same thing with YouTube where they paid... F- like you know 2.1 billion for it mm-hmm. in uh, 2006 in yeah. 2006 and uh, 1.6 billion 1.6 billion and real quick the uh, negotiations for that deal happened at a denny's because they needed to meet someplace secret so the deal for youtube between google happened over mozzarella sticks at a denny's <laughs> sergey was like my mistress needs a place to upload her web series <laughs> <laughs> and they're like but, um we want this to still be a popular website, <laughs> even after you have the rights to it. I know that this is a little odd, but uh, like I know a couple of stories with uh, some of the Microsoft CEOs as well. A lot of tech billionaires have Denny's stories. <laughs> I don't know why, <laughs> but you'd be surprised how many CEOs that are billionaires have like, and then we went to a Denny's. <laughs> Really, the Wi-Fi is so spotty. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually an issue with Google yeah, as well. Well, well, yeah, they, they, that's, they're hiding out. That's what they... Do you want me to talk about that now? Uh, no, no, we'll get yeah, to that yeah. later. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, so with, with, the, uh, with YouTube, they basically, it wasn't necessarily that they would make a profit immediately off YouTube. What it was was that they could test analytics, all kinds of different dimensions of analytics, both from the videos people uploaded mm-hmm. and, you know, from the way people would respond to ads on YouTube. And so they, they essentially were able that's, to... That's why after I uploaded my stand-up set, I started seeing all those suicide counseling hotline ads. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> um, they, they would also start... Um, well, one, one thing they, they did is uh, early on is they, while doing this, people kind of understandably got really uncomfortable mm-hmm. with the situation of really? Google uh, tracking every single thing you do. And they went to great lengths to hide it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like they, 
very early on instituted a policy of secrecy inside Google mm -hmm. um, to keep basically uh, people from being aware of the extent that they can surveil things. Like at one point, their lobby had a ticker running of like up-to-date Google searches. Right, I remember that. Yeah, and uh, uh, Bryn told them to get rid of that. Um, right around when the news of his affair came out. <laughs> I, I was going to say, they've come a long way since the door was open while people were fucking and the employees were <laughs> yeah, watching. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, you can blackmail with that. You can blackmail with that. The first thing they did, put locks on the doors. <laughs> yeah. The masseuse, or the, the massage door is now locked. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and I do just want to, like, mention one other thing, kind of loosely chronological. So the, the AdWords, we mentioned 2002, then 2003 is AdSense. 2004 is their IPO. And the IPO really, I mean, again, Sergey Brin and Larry Page control more than half of the voting shares, so they could change anything. But once you're like a publicly traded company that's responsible to shareholders and investors, you really do get in this generating ad revenue race where they're just doing all of these insanely intrusive things, and it's, it's, it's like a beast spinning out of control. But I did just want to quote from the Value of Genius book, um, Pretty fascinating uh, little anecdote about what happened after the IPO. They quote one I, uh, one former Google employee who says, uh, after the IPO, Google became more button-up, more metrics-driven, which was good for the company probably, but it was not the culture that I was used to and that I enjoy while they're there. Um, they, the, another employee says they started sending people to Dale Carnegie classes, you know, public <laughs> mm -hmm. speaking and, uh, and this kind those. of stuff. But, uh, the, the anecdote that I really wanted to share is, a uh, uh, former employee, uh, Heather Keynes, Cairns, she says, Larry and Sergey used to hold their forks and knives in a fist scooping. They used to scoop food into their mouths, which would be a couple inches from the plate. And, I, and I'd be like, I can't even watch this. I can't. I'm going to be sick. They had to be taught not to do that. And then she also says, uncultured behaviorism comes in. And then she said, after the IPO, nobody has super bad, disgusting behavior anymore. It's really depressing. The personality has been coached out of all of them. Huh. So, yes, after the IPO, Larry and Sergey learned how to eat food. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting, too, that they essentially took the behavioral modification techniques and, like, folded them inside the company as well. Right. Because now everybody represents the brand and all that nonsense. Right, right, right. right. So, um, essentially, they, over time, created a, a, a process to normalize um, what uh, Shoshana Zuboff uh, has called... A, um, the extraction of surplus behavior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, they, they essentially, because everyone's so uncomfortable with this, Google has created both process for um, dealing with the public and a process for gaining a hold on their power in the uh, kind of larger sphere of things. And so uh, the process to normalize, as uh, Zuboff says, uh, surplus extraction is, uh, it's a, one incursion, two habituation, three adaptation, and four redirection. What that means is the first one is incursion. They just don't ask permission for something where they put it in a terms of service agreement that no one's going to read. Sure. And of course, those are intentionally long. Of course. Um, to make it so no one reads them. Uh, like someone did a study that um, it, you would have to spend uh, you know, several. I think several weeks out of your year to read right, all right. the terms of service agreements you encounter yeah. uh, in that given year. Um, 
so there, there's incursion where they introduce a thing. For instance, scanning Gmail, uh, scanning everyone's Gmail to target ads. Right. Uh, then there's habituation where you know people kind of get worn down and used to the technology. Uh, and then there's adaptation, which is eventually people will, when they find out about it, make a big thing about it. And so they'll do some superficial changes hmm. to say that they're um, uh, uh, responding to the, the public outcry. Mm-hmm. And then there's redirection where they kind of regroup uh, and change to appear compliant, but they're really just doing the same old thing. And people eventually just get worn down and they're so used to it. Like, you know, the idea that this sounds like corporate conditioning for the masses. It's like, yeah, yeah. How do we make sure that we can get away with shitty things efficiently and correctly in a way where nobody realizes we're crooks? Maybe this is an example of operant conditioning at work, but the CAPTCHAs that you keep filling out right, where you right. have to mm-hmm. identify where a stop sign is. So mm-hmm. I've been I've been told that that's fed into a machine learning algorithm mm-hmm. that helps them develop their driverless car. Like oh. ambition. <laughs> so you're basically helping their cars learn to, yeah, d- well, to goes, discern oh, where... Yeah, yeah. It goes I've back to... So, several so times, you, including from someone... Uh, you're you're saying to work at Google. you're saying when I fuck those up, I'm killing pedestrians. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so if you fuck up a captcha, like you're sort of culpable in a way. So but that, that definitely, just, definitely. Whenever, up whenever you're supposed to solve for a stop sign, click on the mother pushing a stroller. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also funny the green that light, like I mean. their AI can't recognize a big orange or big red octagon. Right, yeah. right. <laughs> like they have to have outside conditioning to be able yeah. to image that but you all accept they don't even they never tell you about this like other machine learning aspect they just say like use the captcha so we know you're not yeah. a robot to sign into this thing and yeah, like well actually robots can now sign enter mm-hmm. incorrect captchas somewhat frequently right. yeah because so, like that yeah there's like even right. as it's not even about a security aspect anymore. It's just machine learning for their other products. <laughs> the thing that's so terrifying is that we're literally, by interacting with these things, making our lives more miserable tomorrow today. Like, whether it's drones or self-driving cars, ways to kill ourselves tomorrow will be more efficient by our fucking idiocy today. Well, here's the thing, though, is that by saying that we're doing it, you're kind of... It, it, that's, that's also uh, an aspect of, of Google's conditioning is uh, that's fair. they're essentially conditioning us to say that we're doing it to ourselves. When uh, all these technological aspects, um, and the the book Surveillance Capitalism is, is very um, good at pointing this out, like all of the technology that comes with Google can exist independent from the surveillance advertising right, right. Uh, behavioral analysis model. Uh, it's a conscious decision on their part to harvest that data and then reuse it to try to like drive what we're doing. And then they'll, I, I mean, uh, this term is overused, but basically gaslight people to say it's their own fault. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that makes sense. Yeah. And, um, and on top of that, it's, there's also the issue where you can't exist really in our modern, um, society without, a smartphone you can't um you know you maps are ba- it, basically not me man i'm off the grid baby <laughs> <laughs> you know you you can't um do much of anything without email you can't right. uh connect with people because everyone is now 
basically everyone kind of flocked to computers to essentially escape the uh, disaffection that's inherent in our current economic state where everyone is atomized and a quick question like do you think people could sue to be like hey we're basically helping you build your infrastructure i want money from that yeah people do that all the time there but, were there were some eu privacy lawsuits um i don't know exactly how they all got resolved but it was uh the right to be forgotten is one one case and yeah then, in spain they sued for the right to be forgotten but that's more yeah. privacy based i'm saying like with the thing steven just mentioned about like you know choosing the stop signs oh, like that's essentially data? like you know that that's work i mean like that's essentially yeah so like why, why can't i mean not saying that i want to be compensated for this but shouldn't google be paying like okay so like if i put a google review out right if i mm-hmm. review a restaurant or some shit mm-hmm. they're making money off my review in the long run whether it's selling the data to the restaurants or whatever mm-hmm. so in theory shouldn't i be making money off contributing not, to google success not not no, because you signed the terms of uh, oh, right. terms yeah, of okay. use yeah. agreement. That makes sense. It is a very powerful it combination. Says once you log in that review, uh, it's property. Gotcha. You didn't read the terms of service, Yogi? It's a very powerful combination. Are you saying you didn't? When you clicked, I have read and understand the terms of service, you oh, were lying. <laughs> Yogi tried to do a drop, but it's plugged into his computer. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> Well, it is a very powerful combination between like the terms of service, between the army of lawyers, and just the pure capture of the state. Like Google and yeah, Silicon Valley owns the U.S. Democratic Party, uh, and f- to a large degree, the Republican Party as well. And where the it's US like government, fucking yeah, everyone. I mean, you look at the way Mark Zuckerberg was treated on Capitol Hill. All this deferential, like oh, Mr. Billionaire, you built so many billions, so many jobs. You know, you did so great. American Dream, all this nonsense. Well, it's like. You know, you're fucking making children kill themselves and, like, uh, you know, spying on everybody, uh, absolutely just exploiting and uh, abusing people's trust and privacy, selling their private messages to anybody who wants them, you know? Right. And it's like... Yeah, you Spotify would ex- can read your private Facebook message. Yes. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that, that came out recently. But, I mean, it's just like you what look was, at... What was especially funny about that yeah. was uh, that came out just as Spotify was doing their regular, like, subway advertising blitz. And so they were... <laughs> It, they like had those things that said like, "Hey, we're real sorry to the person who made breakup playlists," and it's like you can read our messages. Why are you advertising right, this, right. You know. idiots? But um, but but yeah, I mean, it is just something where it's like anybody who behaved as badly, who didn't have just complete control over the political process, both here and to a large extent in the European Union as well. Um, I, I know they've uh, Google's been fined for various practices in the European Union, but well, it's also like with the uh, with the Zuckerberg thing, it, it it's become an element of fear amongst elected officials because mm-hmm. in 2012, uh, Facebook released a study. Now, the the effectiveness of this is kind of it could be a bit dubious, um, and it also ties into the 2008 election. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially. They they have portrayed themselves, and to a degree, they probably do have a certain amount of political power. Uh, in 2012, Facebook did this experiment where they would try to get more people to vote, and they would calculate it by people clicking on like a little thing to say, I voted, to right, right. show that they voted. And mm-hmm. so they would try a bunch of different um, techniques to see if they could influence people who voted. And so one way they, they, they would... put up a hot or not list of elected officials. <laughs> <laughs> It, well, one thing they did um, was they would first they would tell people, hey, you should go vote. 
and see what the results of that would be. Then they would say, like, here's a list of your friends, just kind of randomly selected, or from just all your friends on your friends list who clicked I voted and said, like, they voted, you should vote. And then one final thing they did is they would use facial recognition software to find pictures where, um, to find friends that are in the same picture as someone else. So basically friends that people know face to face. And they would say, this person voted, you should vote. Right. And that mm. um, basically manipulating people's social relations. Um, and that showed that that had the strongest results of getting people out to the ballot box. And then of course the implications are Facebook can manipulate people's behavior uh, with regards to, you know, going out to vote. Um, another political thing that they did uh, was Eric Schmidt, when he was uh, done, or when, you know, he, right after he left Google. As CEO. Yeah. As CEO, he went over to the Obama campaign in 2008. Right. And headed up there, um, basically, Obama's election campaign. Mm -hmm. And it was historic in that it was the first uh, campaign that used big data, essentially, right. and you know this all these data analytics tools that they had perfected at Google and that later that Facebook was learning to perfect um, in an election. And people who had worked on it, you know, they would say things like, "Oh, we knew who people were going to vote for before they did," which you know a bit of that I'm sure is advertising. Sure, like Google's trying to. Uh, Google and Facebook are also trying to make themselves look all powerful because right, right. mm -hmm. that's how you get the ad revenues. But it also um, it also scares elected officials because then you don't want to piss them off. Yeah, of course. Because they have the ability to sway elections now. Hmm. It's mm -hmm. almost as if it's the government's big <laughs> brother. Well, well so, two points on that, though. Uh, first off, uh, according to the Creepy Line document, large parts of the U.S. federal government use Google Docs, Google Tools, Gmail. Um, so in addition, like besides... DSA. Yeah, DSA. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't wait for the DSA platform that is like, we need to nationalize all of the companies except for big tech. <laughs> I need my Google Docs. <laughs> But so, you know, again, like, and, uh, you know, the implication here, I don't know if we've explicitly said it, I'm sure most people have figured it out, if Google Docs is free, if Gmail is free, all these programs that say Microsoft was charging you for Microsoft Word, if it's free, there's no free lunch, they are making money by profiling you, and learning everything about you, and selling that to advertisers. And, uh, and right. it, the, basically, as uh, Yogi was saying earlier about getting compensated, Essentially, the way that they look at it is that they're compensating you by having you use the product. Right, I mean, it's sadly, free, so you're... I'm literally yeah. using Google Maps while we're having this conversation, <laughs> yeah. but yes, continue. Oh, and then just one other thing uh, to mention. In addition to Eric Schmidt uh, being on Obama's... He was an economic advisor. Uh, yeah, yeah. Eric Schmidt, uh, Larry Page, and three other Google execs donated $25,000 each to fund a $150,000 party at Obama's inaugural. And uh, more than 90% of political donations uh, by Google employees go to the Democratic Party. Hmm. But Google, of course, is the largest lobbyist in uh, the United States and they spread their cash around the way Facebook or most major companies do where it's like you spread your cash around so that no matter who's in power, you have a, a, f a foot in the door. Are they the largest donator to the uh, Democratic Party, do you think? I, I mean, uh, yes. Like I know Silicon Valley is kind of the major cash source, whereas the Republicans kind of rely more on like fossil fuels and these kinds of things. And 
Wall Street goes back and forth. They're more with the Republicans now. Right. But uh, Silicon Valley, California, is like a major cash source yeah. for the establishment Democratic Party. Gotcha. <clears throat> Essentially, yeah, Eric Schmidt, um, he had a, a big role on Obama's, uh, essentially his economic transition team. Mm -hmm. And Schmidt essentially has said publicly that he doesn't think that uh, technology should be regulated by the government because it moves faster than the government, which is kind of just a Trojan horse. He he also thinks his behavior shouldn't be regulated by his (laughs) wife. (laughs) Yeah, he's like... Throughout this book, Eric Schmidt is kind of like this dark villain just lurking around. Like, well, it's pretty interesting, like, just from the Creepy Line documentary, again, like, they have lots of clips of him just explicitly lying to interviewers. Right. Because Larry Page and Sergey Brin are kind of like introverts who more just talk to tech people. Mm-hmm. Whereas when he was hired by as CEO, Eric Schmidt was like the public face of the company. So he was the one answering most of these privacy concern questions. Right. And he's like, I mean, the the documentary Creepy Line is named after his 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 line about essentially saying Google goes right up to the creepy line but we don't cross it and they just have all these other clips of him just explicitly lying and saying like for us to get your data you have to opt in and all this other stuff and then what of course and then what of course uh, goes unsaid is that they'll make it so that as a condition of using their products you have to opt in Mm -hmm. Um, and you know that'll be hidden in the middle of a terms of service agreement Mm -hmm. now they're they're, uh, they actually have using Obama, they essentially created all kinds of uh, different ways for uh, sort of political penetration. Uh, like Obama was basically a, uh, a huge vector for this kind of thing. Um, because well, they, the book didn't say whether uh, they let Eric Schmidt have his own slide in the White House. Mm-hmm. But uh, apparently by April 2016, 197 uh, government employees went to Google uh, to become like executives. And then 61 executives went from Google to the government. And of those 22 were white house officials who went to Google and 31 Google execs went to the white house. So essentially they were just going back and forth between those. What year was that? Um, this was from 2008 to, uh, 2016. <laughs> wow. Eight yeah. years of this shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eight years are just circle jerking one another with employees. Yeah. And that's, those, those are the biggest growth years yeah, for Google. Certainly. And you can you can also honestly see like because Obama saw all that success in his 2008 campaign from essentially surveillance techniques like you, you can see how easily that's going to translate into uh, X key score like you were looking at that Stephen um, oh yeah like, I mean, Google was one of the contractors on on, on X key score uh, the data collection and manipulation software that went into the CIA the sorry. Uh, NSA. The NSA program called PRISM. Right, right. Oh, yeah. that's what Snowden leaks? Yeah, the Snowden yeah, yeah, leaks. Snowden mm. leaks. Yeah. So, like, that's interesting that you have, the, you have like, the revolving door policy between Google and the White House mm-hmm. that everyone, like, everyone kind of, rec- well, not everyone, but, like, it's a well, rec- it's well documented, that relationship dynamic between Wall Street 
yeah. and White House and Congress. And, you know, but, like, yeah. and, uh, but it's at the same, at the very same time with the Obama administration, it was also going on with the tech world. Yeah. Right. And that's like, I mean, it's, it's interesting where, again, the book I read was written in 2011 and you see the ideology all the way through it. But there was a time in this country where we really thought tech was going to save us. Yeah. We thought, you know, Steve Jobs was the genius. We just need Elon Musk to be the next Steve Jobs. We just need enough people who learn how to code. And all these Silicon Valley people like kind of transcend the dirty capitalist model because these are idealists. These are people building our future. And of course, when you have this kind of revolving door between the White House and uh, government and uh, big tech, of course, you know, the entire government and uh, ideology is going to reflect that. So, but in actuality, of course, we're more people are becoming aware of just how vicious the, the level of surveillance is and the information that Facebook and Google have on you that dwarfs anything, you know, a Stalinist state would be able to have in the past. And it's, it's, um, what's especially interesting about this is like, it's it's created you know this whole basically technocrat mindset mm-hmm. uh, that is most quickly embodied in this guy Sandy Penthouse who has <laughs> that's his name yeah or no I'm not Penthouse Sandy he's, Penthouse he's named after Eric Schmidt's favorite place to stay <laughs> <laughs> Sandy P- Penthouse with his uh, brother Alex Pentland okay. Alex <laughs> quote right. Sandy Pentland gotcha. um, Sandy Pentland. He, His letters are much more boring. <laughs> <laughs> he is like this kind of floppy TED Talk teddy bear um, mm-hmm. who <laughs> essentially pioneered at MIT what he calls social physics, which is uh, the use, basically the manipulation of people's social interactions um, to create desired outcomes. And he, he says it from, like, you're manipulating social interactions from a view from above. You know, you're looking down on people like they're an anthill, and if you can trace as much as you can about them, right. you could then use that to manipulate them. And he had a hand in that um, Facebook election experiment and uh, how people uh, interacted with each other and using that to manipulate people. Uh, but he doesn't necessarily see it that way. Um, so, like, here's the mindset that he kind of goes in this with we could solve global warming tomorrow if we all knew how to sort of talk about it rationally come to a good decision and then carry that through and the the fact that that sounds like ludicrous fantasy oh yeah everybody agrees sure not in our lifetime tells you just how profound the problem is um, and that's why i think one of the most important things that's happened in the last decade something that you've all been part of is this era of big data which it's not about big at all. It's about personal data. He's, that's him talking to Google employees. Hmm. Um, it, it, they, they, they all seem to have this, like, yeah, tech will save us mindset. Like, um, I know, I know. I only ever think about the Nazis, but just <laughs> in that in that clip, you can hear like the silverware clattering in the background, and it kind of reminds <laughs> me of that Heinrich Himmler's secret speech to the SS about how like what they're doing is like necessary and uh, will save the world, but they can never speak of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's oh. even with like in that clip, they're talking specifically about climate change and getting everyone to understand and agree, and I'm like specifically in our present 2019 context like nancy pelosi clearly does understand that climate change is real and is unwilling to do anything about it yeah and it, it, part of it is like they just have no concept of power dynamics yeah. or they're not willing to acknowledge them like one of the things he talks about in this talk is how 
they used a system somewhere in like Norway to get people to um, use less electricity as they were like, if you use less electricity, uh, a friend of yours will get a reward. And so then using, I mean, basically his techniques just come down to peer pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, basically using peer pressure, they got people to like drop their usage by 17%. Great. But individuals using technology isn't what's driving global warming. As we all know, it's driven by industrial interests and, you know, profit motives and basically uh, an economic system that is uh, idealized for constant growth or that is built around constant growth. And even in this talk, he talks about how, like, he can use these systems to increase GDP in various areas. And one thing that he doesn't talk about is the question of who, get, who gets to make the decisions of um, how these tools are used. Because one of the big linchpins of um, all of all of this surveillance stuff is that it does not work if people know they're being surveilled, and it, it if, really? if people are able to see that it's happening to them, it, it just it doesn't have the same effect. They, people have to be unaware that they're being used as a tool, and mm -hmm. um, it's like the Truman Show effect. Yeah, yeah. And in, in, in the book about the surveillance capitalism, uh, she makes, uh, Zuoff makes the observation that it's not totalitarianism, but instrumentarianism. Because totalitarianism uh, tries to basically convert someone to this idea, body and soul, mm -hmm. um, to like, you know, commit to uh, a state or whatever uh, throughout. Um, themselves, but instrumentarianism tries to work invisibly. It's not trying to get people to commit to this idea. It's just trying to use them towards uh, your means um, from basically a, a little man behind the curtain kind of thing. What's behind then all of this is these people who are creating this technology, and you you also certainly saw it in the Obama administration, was this idea that like we know best. And mm -hmm. we know how to use this best. But of course, with Google, what that really amounts to is just like, we know how to get you to buy a boner pill. Right. Like, it's just this massive infrastructure that is ultimately 89% of their profits are advertising. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, it's, it's this, this big instrumentarian system that studies and analyzes everything we do, um, ultimately just to get us to buy whatever shit. Uh, people who buy ads want to sell us. Well, and going back to the Nazis, <laughs> uh, the the entire learn to code ideology really feeds <laughs> into that, where it's like you have this untermensch or whatever, which these are the poor masses. These are the people who don't know how to code. These are not the Silicon Valley geniuses. Mm -hmm. And the idea is anyone can become part of this coding master race by just mm -hmm. learning how to code and becoming these Silicon Valley, you know, uh, uh, millionaires and people making six figures at Google or whatever. But of course, the other part of that is, of course, these people are superior to us. They know how to code. They mm -hmm. know what we should be doing. So, of course, they can be trusted with our data. Right. Of course, they have the right to know every single thing about our lives because they are superior to us and we are the, the untermensch who who cannot code and and you know and again just like the horrifying thing is of course google and facebook and all these companies they already have all this data so that's scary enough that you know we're just because they are superior to us we have to trust them that they won't abuse this control they have over us but at any point you know they could be hacked our data could be leaked 
or they could just comply with a government subpoena, our data could be leaked, or they could just start working with the government, which of course they do in, in several cases, and our data could be leaked. So there's just like the very existence of these yeah. profiles is horrifying. And you know, these people that we just have to trust that are they are superior to us, even if they were, which of course they are not, mm -hmm. you know, fucking Eric Schmidt is in the cookie jar all day. Yeah. You yeah. know, so like why not what what, what it, if he gets blackmailed I mean, uh, in, in his case, it's public information, but say one of them gets blackmailed for something, it's like, well, of course, they'll they'll just compromise our privacy to, to get rid of whatever. But even if they were these perfect angels, the very existence of these data profiles is fucking yeah. horrifying. Yeah, and it's completely undemocratic because it's, it's, it's sort of this one-way mirror of control of information. Mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I think you, that also... Uh, begs, I think, uh, we as a pod go a bit further and say that um, billionaires are an affront to democracy. Oh, yeah, and, yeah like, absolutely. Their, their, like, their very existence is a threat to democracy, as yeah. I think is one of our themes as a pod. Well, look, I mean, if... Uh, and, of course, so, of course, they would build this, this, like, massive system of... Massive administrative system that they themselves have, like, only they have the expertise to really manage and are trusted with. And is basically mm -hmm. built to keep us you know buying things and uh unaware that we're being constantly influenced to you know keep the the system that keeps them rich running mm -hmm. do you all think that the system that you're describing just now it was you know with foresight intentionally built or almost stumbled upon it was at first it was stumbled upon yeah i don't think I yeah. give the credit yeah. of they yeah. designed it this way because yeah. it's it's more um i mean honestly comical that it's like Hey, we figured out we can fuck over people like this. It's like, uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I mean, it's great that they stumbled upon it from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, like that, you know, what a what a brilliantly odd question of Carol Brady, blah blah blah, to make them go, what the fuck? Why are people looking this up? You know? Yeah. And yeah, I honestly, think some of like the like um when when the creepy line they're talking about um Google's ability to influence elections, mm -hmm. right? I honestly think like part of the bias that he uncovered was like Google didn't even intend for that at all to happen. Right. But right. they just sort of stumbled upon it, like you said. And well, then now they completely like embrace it. Like, uh, yeah, like part of it is just inoperable. Like you wouldn't be able to really shift it into a way that you could influence, say, a gubernatorial race hmm. in the same way that you could do so with so like quote-unquote low-tech methods of like just making just outright racism or something where you bar people from being able to sign up to vote or something. 